This podcast is brought to you by FormKeep. Form endpoints for designers and developers. No iframes, JavaScript embeds, or CSS overrides. Try out our sandbox mode before you buy at formkeep.com. Talk to the mic. I know you're going to want to look at Sean, but don't talk to Sean. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's okay. He doesn't want to look at me. He, he looks at me too much. Anyway. <laughs> Hi, Sean. Hi, Dirk. Hi, Raphael. Hey, <laughs> Hi. Today we're joined by Raphael Franca. You are on the Rails core team? Yes, I'm on the Rails core team for the last four years, I think. And you've made like a handful of commits in that time? Yes, I think I'm the first one contributors right now. Yeah, I think you're ahead of Aaron by like almost a thousand at this point. Uh, maybe I'm not looking on that website anymore now that I passed the arrow. I <laughs> well, now that you're number one, it's, yeah. 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 Um, so uh, we recently had a transition in the team, uh, and Sprockets uh, lost its main contributor. And you've been uh, you were you were giving a talk today about or yesterday. Yeah, yeah, yeah yesterday. Was, you yeah, gave a talk yesterday. Not that, not that the timing of the talk matters to the listeners, but uh, <laughs> you gave a talk about about uh, how Sprockets works. Yes, exactly. My my idea about this talk was to give people more understanding about Sprockets and how it works. Because since we lost the main contributor, we are now trying to understand how Sprockets works, <laughs> so we can actually improve it and i don't know creating new we features. don't know either yeah <laughs> we don't know either exactly that so in the last one year i spent a lot of time working with sprockets i just made a, up, a big upgrade in shopify from sprockets 2 to sprockets 3 and i got to learn a lot about how Sprockets works and how difficult it is for our developers at Shopify to understand how Sprockets works. So I tried to, in this talk, explain how it works and how we can use and extend it in the right way. So for people who don't know, Sprockets is what provides, it's in your gem file, in your Rails application gem file. If you don't know what it is, it uh, is what provides the asset pipeline behaviors. Yes, exactly that. Right. It's not in gen file, it's actually a dependency of the Rails gen, but mm. yeah, you got that when you install the Rails okay. framework. Okay. So what is what's like the most surprising thing you learned <laughs> about the state of sprockets when you when you took it over? Okay, so I think the most surprised thing was how it actually works right now in applications. So by default sprockets should not compile your assets in productions. But I saw a lot of problems in Shopify because it was actually compiling assets in production in runtime. And that took a lot of time and nobody knew about that. So to fix that, we in this Pockets Rails gen version 3, we disable Sprockets environment entirely, so you cannot even compile assets by mistake in production anymore. And doing that, I found that a lot of people were doing compilation in production, and that that was a really huge break change because I had to fix a lot of bugs because of that. 
So so there was there was a bug in that like even if you didn't mean to be doing production asset compilation, you sometimes were. Yes, exactly. So you fixed that by disabling the ability to do that at all. Exactly. And then a whole bunch of other people said, I was doing that on purpose, and now <laughs> no, I can't? Or <laughs> Not purpose, but okay. the application break, and they mm. don't know why. So right. I had to explain that, okay, you were actually compiling assets in production, and now I disabled that so you can actually know that you are not compiling. So if you want, you can enable. If you don't want, you have to fix your code. The one of the, I think one of the things I liked, I think it might have been in Sprockets Rails and not in Sprockets itself, but one of the versions changed it so that even in development mode, the uh, stuff gets digested now, right? Yes. Is that true? So now you, can, you can't make that mistake where you say, like, I want an image tag, or you don't use the image tag helper, you just use, like, IMG SRC equals assets slash, you know, logo.png, and that works fine in development because you weren't fingerprinting assets in development. I guess maybe you probably... I don't know if you could still make that mistake, but you you can in in certain cases because there are some things that don't get digested unless they're like explicitly in a manifest, if I remember correctly. Mm -hmm. An yeah. asset path still returns the string by default if it doesn't find the the, the path that you give it. Yes, exactly. But okay. yeah, all the assets are now digested, so you cannot observe out that behavior even in development. So you cannot make this mistake of actually. Right. Having your application working in development, but not in production. Right. Why don't we just change asset path so if it doesn't find the file, it raises an exception instead of just returning the string you gave it? Yeah, that's a good question. I think the reason is sometimes you really want to use assets that are not in your application, like external application or external dependencies. Right, but then you just use the string and, and don't call asset path. Yeah, that's true. Seems like there's an, there is an easy workaround. <laughs> yeah, it, yes, exactly. It just returns the string unchanged. Yes, we can try to to change that. I don't know. Maybe some people is using that behavior, but it's actually one of the most surprising behavior we have in assets path is exactly that when you don't have the asset, we fall back for the public folder, and some people don't know that that happened because it's not documented at all. So it's surprising. I actually had this problem yesterday when I was was working my talk. I tried to reproduce exception that we give now in development when you don't precompile the asset. And I could not because I actually enter in this behavior of if you you don't have the asset, it tries to fall back to the public folder. So if me had made this mistake right. of not knowing this behavior. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a common mistake. I think everybody runs into it at least once. And right, it's always, anything that involves not getting an error in development mode, but having it blow up in production is always tricky to, to spot. And even for, for us as, as API designers, it's difficult to realize sometimes when that when that sort of mistake is being made, like in that we're introducing an API that makes that even possible. Because we're because we're you know when we're actually testing a lot of stuff we're usually testing it in development mode. Yes. The other change like the that I was super excited to see was at some point along the way Sprockets lost the ability or the default ability. I don't know if you had to opt in. I think you just couldn't do it anymore uh, to pre when you precompiled the assets to also generate them gzipped. Mm. And the I think the idea behind that originally was like well you're web server can do this for you automatically. Like you can just have the gzip plugin and it can gzip for you. 
or something like that. But the advantage of having the asset pipeline do it as part of pre-compilation is that it can do the slow version of that and like eke out every little bit that it can get. And then your server doesn't have that overhead at all, right? So I'm excited to see that be is that coming back. Um, what were do you know what the more about the specifics of why that was removed and what the challenges were there? So if I remember correctly, it was a bug in Apache. So to actually serve the assets, Apache were doing the ETEC calculation, and for some reason the ETEC calculation was not correct for the GZIP version. So to fix that, Josh just said the previous maintainer said, okay, you can have the web server doing this for you and you not have to have the same e-tag bug so you can just remove from his pockets. Mm -hmm. But in Nginx, it's totally fine to use the sprockets version and it actually works in the correct way. So we put back and also there are some Platforms like Heroku and CDNs that if we actually have the gzip version, it's better for them. So yeah. it's coming back now. Also source maps. Very excited for source maps. Yeah, I'm excited too, but there are still some bugs that we need to fix before the final version of Sprockets 4. It's more like we know how to calculate source map for CoffeeScript files, for SSS files, but normal CSS files and JavaScript files, we don't know how to calculate that yet. Richard and I were working to get that ready for the Sprockets 4, but I'm more focused on real side right now. So Yeah. After uh, after it was announced on stage that we're shipping this week, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I have to ship it today or tomorrow. Yeah, in I'm before giving, the end of the RailsConf. I'm doing the upgrading to Rails five workshop tomorrow. So uh, if you could drop the release candidate like an hour before, that'd be great. Because then you know, <laughs> about we drop it an hour into it. <laughs> an hour into it would be even better. It was like what what? Yeah, no, a minute ago that. we weren't getting this failure. <laughs> we can just have somebody in like a in like a suit come and slip you a piece of paper. <laughs> Rails 5. Rails 5 has been released. Or well, release 1 has been released. <laughs> Ideally, the release candidate is identical to the final release. Right. Well, we've seen processes before that go... Like Rails 4, I think, had several release candidates. Uh, yeah, I think, it, I think we had two, yeah. Yeah, two. Okay. So it happens sometimes. Yeah. Uh, but that's exciting. How has that process been for... Like, who owns the process of deciding, like, we're good, we're going to do release candidate now? The release manager. And yeah, right now the release manager is Sean and Elin. Mm -hmm. and but sometimes me and Jeremy took off the release manager process just because they were too busy to do mm -hmm. the release manager process. And we have done this for, I don't know, four years, three years, so we know how to do that. Yeah. But the main problem where we have a lot of new features in RailsOR, five actually and we try to implement some difficult stuff like auto loading in development being third safe and easy problem to solve <laughs> yeah that is exactly what is blocking the release right now that one's actually fixed oh great yeah <laughs> so now we only need to release rec 2 i think that is the main blocker there's one other really small one that i can just fix as soon as rack is out 
Okay, so by the time people will hear this, oh, Rails release will Canada will be certainly out. be out, and hopefully the actual final build will also be yeah, out. Yeah, no, the final be build will be out by the time this goes out. All right, so cool. <laughs> and um, we'll all be upgraded to Rails 5, and uh, you know we'll be on our way to 5.0.1. Yeah. No, but it was funny, like, because we've been saying that we're going to ship this week. Like, that was the plan. Mm-hmm. Um, before, you know, before this week, that was definitely the plan, just because we were all, we got a room rented out, and we're all here, and we can make it happen. Um, but <laughs> we weren't expecting uh, David and Jeremy to both announce it on stage, because, you know, like, now it's like, hey, no pressure, guys. Well, I, I don't know. If it didn't happen, I don't think anybody would like leave disappointed. If it doesn't happen this week, it'll happen next week. Or I would week leave after. disappointed. Well, sure, you would be. You might be feeling the added pressure of having that announced, but I don't think it changed anybody's expectations. Probably not materially. Like, yeah, probably people is not even ready to upgrade to Rails five. Right, half of them aren't even on four two yet. Right, the people who want and, and the people who want to upgrade to Rails five want other people to do it first. So like, <laughs> they're yeah, gonna exactly. let they're gonna let other people go first and uh, see how it goes anyway. And like your workshop, yeah, we'll do, it, we'll do it in the workshop. That's right, as long as we have Wi Fi. <laughs> Well, and if you don't have Wi-Fi, right, we ha- we'll have, like, half the Rails core team there, so we'll just rewrite Rails 5 offline right there. Right. No problem. Sure. Sounds good. So, Sprockets has a release pro- or cycle that is independent of Rails, right? Right. So, uh, what's gonna, so when Sprockets 4 comes out, is it just going to be everybody changes their gem file and we're all good, or is it going to have to, how's that going to work? Yeah, that is something that we need to figure it, it out, because... Sprocket is not a direct dependency of Rails, and most applications don't have the Sprocket version defined. So if you, you is going to upgrade your Rails gen, you are going to also get the newest Sprockets. Mm-hmm. That in the case will be Sprockets 4. And that for sure will break a lot of applications. So I don't know how to fix that yet. Maybe we should put Sprockets as explicit dependency in the G- application's gem file. Yeah, and then we can just put an upper version limit on the hard dependency in our gem spec and then stop having it as a hard dependency at all. Yes, we can try that. Cool. S- so Problem solved. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Problem solved, live on the bike shit. <laughs> So what else is coming in Sprockets 4? Is there, is there anything that people uh, aren't, like, that isn't super well-known? So apart of source maps, we have some new processors, like the SAS-C version. So you can actually have better CSS, faster CSS processing using the C implementation of the SAS project. Oh, so it uses libsass? Yeah, libsass. That's awesome. I'm very much excited by that. Yeah, so no so no more timeouts when you change your CSS files? Yes. Yes, <laughs> that's really great. And also we have some... Sprocket had a lot of internal changes, and now the API is more stable. We have a good API for extending Sprockets. So it's easier for, like I presented in my talk, to create new processors to create transformation between different MIME types like SVGs to PNGs or I think it's also possible to create, I never tried that but it should be possible to create image sprites using sprockets built in because you can actually have have a, a bundle processor that just mesh all the images and can also generate the CSS classes for these images seems like it would be good yeah that sounds awesome because 
I've done spriting before. I used to use compass to do spriting because it had um, something built in for it. Mm -hmm. But I don't use compass anymore. And I just stopped spriting things because spriting things is a pain in, pain in the ass. Yeah, well, and, and it's <laughs> like with HTTP2, it stops being true. Yeah, helpful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. True, but we'll be waiting for that right. for a little while anyway. Well, then Who you knows? showed... Um, What's going to come first? A broad, broad availability of HTTP2 or like source maps? <laughs> <laughs> it's a race. No, well, then you, uh, is the Babel processor new in 4 or is that new in 3? Yeah, it's new in 4. Yeah. Jewel. So we ship yes, 2015 compatible stuff by default? Yeah, it's exactly by default. Not by default in Rails application, but it's built in Sprocket. So it's just easy as you change the extension of your JavaScript files to ES6. So you can have a new JavaScript implementation by default in any Rails application. And then you were showing a way to uh, use a directive to get dependencies from NPM? Yes, I did. So you can get left padding in your strings very easily? <laughs> exactly. I never thought about that. I should have to make this joke. You should have. <laughs> yeah. So you'll be able to use... So I want to make sure I get this right. So you'll be able to use a directive in your manifest file? Yes. To say, get these dependencies for me from NPM? Yes, exactly that. That's pretty awesome. It, so it's not yeah. going to install the dependencies, but if you have a project, NPM project inside your Rails project, you can just call NPM install, mm -hmm. and that is going to be installed on the node modules folder, and that directive gets the right version of your asset from NPM. So do you have to do, at that point, would you have to check those NPM modules into your project for deployment purposes? No, you just... No, you can okay, just install... Well, what? actually, yes, because shrink wrap still doesn't work. Right. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Right, yeah. And, and, and you want uh, reproducible builds. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's exactly but still, that. that's nice, because like, I've been preaching to use Rails assets for a while for asset dependencies in Rails, and that's going away. Is it? Yes. Oh, that's unfortunate. Um, I believe. I mean, at one point they announced it was going away. I'm going to pull it up on my phone right now, see what's going on. But, but yeah, I think it's I think it's really cool. Like, I, I don't think a lot of people have ever considered what Sprockets does. I think there's a lot of hubbub about just, like, why doesn't Rails integrate with Grunt or Gulp? But Sprockets actually does a lot for you and is much simpler. Yes, I agree with that. It's the reason that we actually believe that for Rails, it's better to improve its sprockets and get in the same level that the others alternatives are, like Webpack and I forgot the another one. Broccoli, Grunt, uh, Brunch. Browserify. Uh, <laughs> Browserify. Oh, yeah. yeah. Browserify, yeah. Man, I mean, if, if your main goal is just to concatenate and... Um, minify your css files like everything can do that there's really no reason to use one one tool for just that over over another um and sure like some of the other build tools can do really really cool stuff if you're doing really complicated things but you could also just not do complicated things in your javascript builds because you're concatenating and minifying files i wonder like i agree that at this point I don't think there's any reason to like pull out the whole asset pipeline and be like, now we're doing an NPM-based thing for your front-end stuff. But do you think if you were inventing a re an asset pipeline today, right, would you write something like Sprockets or would you do like the the comparison I would draw is like to Elixir. So Elixir had a Phoenix in particular had like the decision to make about whether or not they were going to build an asset pipeline or just use NPM, and so they decided, well, we're just going to use NPM. This is more established at this point, but. 
I think I would more in, uh, closely integrate things that operate with ES6 require over the require directive. Mm. But beyond that, I don't know. Yeah, I also think that I actually participated of the decision of what they were going to do with the Phoenix asset pipeline. So I were in the platform tech. Mm-hmm. At the time, and I talked with, with you, Jose, about the problems of his pockets and the integration with Rails application. And yeah, we agreed that it would be better to Phoenix to try other alternatives before actually have, having decided to build the whole thing. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how it's going right now. Maybe they are a red set that they want to keep using branch. But maybe in the future, they may need some features that they would have to implement in, in yep. Elixir itself. Well, in theory, they could use Sprockets in Elixir, right? Yes, but exactly. I talked with Jose and I gave that alternative, but he said he did not want to introduce Ruby dependency in Elixir's But introducing a node dependency is yes. fine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but actually, because even in Sprocks, you actually need a JavaScript environment, so right. you would have to have the Ruby environment and the JavaScript environment right. to use the Sprockets. Yeah, and I mean, like... Because I think everything except Linux has one by default, but Windows script host is only ES3 compatible, and that means that can't work with uh, any version of the CoffeeScript compiler later than 6, which I still need to um, fix that. Not Well, not, not fix like Windows script host, but um, basically the fact that the gem file that we generate uh, fails on Windows unless they have Node installed. And I th- like, it's just because the, uh, the CoffeeScript compiler uses object.create, so we can just polyfill object.create when we load the CoffeeScript compiler. Yeah, or generate an older version. Virtual, yeah, of CoffeeScript. Um, but like that, that the problem isn't going to go away. And so I feel like if we just lock it to an older version, eventually that does become a problem. Yeah, yeah. And it's just I think it's just easier to polyfill object.create for them when we when we load that file. I had a patch. I just needed to figure out the right place to put it, and then forgot about it until right now. But given that now. In Windows, you can develop it in Bash. Do we still need to fix these problems? Because it's a Ubuntu <laughs> Linux installation, right? Right, but I do still want it to... Like, I'm, I'm not so much concerned about developers using Windows at their day job. I'm more, cons- more concerned about programs like RailsBridge. And so um, I want the, the, the thing that a brand new person is most likely to do to be the thing that just works. Yeah, that makes sense. And so anything that involves and install Linux, even if the because uh, the, the the install process for for Bash on Windows is pretty okay, but it's definitely targeted at like developers. developers mm-hmm. Whereas the one-click Ruby installer is more familiar to people who aren't developers. But you know, it's little things like having it not error. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and it's great because uh, like it was so hard to track down because the error message you get is undefined is not an object with no stack trace from Ruby code. <laughs> yeah, that's the problem with ExecGS. It's hard to see, have the stack trace. Yeah. 
No, and it was just like it was. Uh, it, it took almost a full day to figure out where it was coming from, and finally we realized. But it was the CoffeeScript compiler. But I, I had no inkling that it was the asset pipeline in the first place, other than that it was a JavaScript error message. But I was just trying to figure out like. Because uh, there were no JavaScript files, right? But we still run application.js through the CoffeeScript compiler. Yes, we do. So it's you know it's just trying to compile an empty file, but I, it, like it, I just remember thinking, why am I seeing a JavaScript error in my Ruby code? This makes no sense to me. Anyway, it's all tricky. I wish th- I wish there was a uh, lib CoffeeScript. Yeah, I, I wish too. But given that the JavaScript community prefers to write everything in JavaScript, that would never happen. No. Yeah. Is CoffeeScript going to remain the default for the foreseeable future? Yes, David still wants CoffeeScript to be the default, although I believe that that may cause some problem because CoffeeScript and ECMAScript 6 have the same construction like class mm-hmm. classes, and they are not compatible at all. So if you have a project with both CoffeeScript and ECMAScript 6, you are going to have problems. In Shopify, we are migrating all the CoffeeScript files to JavaScript files again to use ECMAScript 6. Yeah, for most of my projects, I haven't even been using ESX. Like, I just, I just write JavaScript ES5, I guess you would say. And it's fine. Like, it's not great, but like... It works when I'm in my happy place of almost everything is server-side code, and then I, I sprinkle on a little JavaScript, <laughs> and that works just fine. Um, if I were doing you know a front-end app, then I'd probably do ES6, but yeah, because um, there's some nice stuff there. But I don't know. I think we do need to have an easy config option that just changes all the generators to ES6. Yeah, that's really easy to do, actually, because what we can do, for example, is have ES6 by the following rails, the framework itself, because right now it's JavaScript, right? Mm-hmm. And have the CoffeeScript gen to actually change the generator to generate CoffeeScript. This actually works right now. Right. So if you don't have the CoffeeScript Coffee Rail gen in your gen file, you are going to get the JavaScript version, not the Coffee version. Right. And so then we just, if they have uh, Babel Rails but not Coffee Rails, then we generate .es6 by default. Or we can just not have any change and have ES6 by the following rails. But if you want CoffeeScript, you actually... Oh, I see. So you're saying we just fall back to Babel and not ever fall back to normal JS. Yes, exactly. I think that's fine. Maybe. Who wants normal JS? I mean, <laughs> the downside is we effectively enforce a node dependency on rails. Is it our, is it Babel is written in node. Oh. Yeah, but, but we also have the Babel chain. RubyGen that does the same thing that CoffeeScript Gen does, that is running through the ExactJS runtime, so you don't actually need Node.js. Does that actually work, though? Because I thought Babel needed Node specifically. Yeah, they need in the version, I don't know, it's four, maybe, three, I don't remember the version, but we can actually generate installation of a node and get all the JavaScript files and put inside the chain. Oh, okay. Well, that's it's cool. kind of what we are doing in the Sprocks Common JS project that we have at Shopify that actually gets some small JavaScript modules and put inside the chain. Hmm. 
I mean, this sounds like a giant hack, but <laughs> yeah, it is a hack. Uh, but hey, it works. No, that's good because that's just I don't want to introduce Node as a hard dependency of Rails because especially again, right, going back to the the, the newbie uh, use case, like that's just a really confusing thing. Like I need to install Node to install my Ruby. Yeah, that's really confusing, especially because all of this. We also just need to have it not use any of this on a, a brand new project. Like if application JS is empty, have it not. Other than, other than including jQuery and jQuery UJS, have it not run it through any compilers because that's that's actually the bigger problem. Is like if they need Node when they start doing JavaScript stuff, that makes a little bit more sense. But when it's just you do Rails new and your server crashes unless you have Node, yeah, that makes sense. Um, we need to check that because yeah, it, it should be that way. I wonder if it's just a matter of having jQuery UJS be written in JavaScript, at least in the version that actually goes onto Ruby Gems. It's actually written in JavaScript. Oh, I, I really wonder where the co- we, I sh- we should look at uh, when we have a chance. We should look yeah, at where the CoffeeScript compiler yeah. is getting invoked because something is invoking it. Ma- uh, maybe it's TurboLinks or Mabel Action Cable. Oh, it probably is TurboLinks. Yeah, TurboLinks use CoffeeScript. Yeah, TurboLinks should just ship. Like again, regardless of whether it's written in CoffeeScript, the gem should ship the compiled JavaScript. Yeah, we did that with Action Cable. And I think TurboLinks 5 is also in JavaScript. Okay, well then maybe the problem just goes away and I'm worrying for nothing. We should check this though. Cool. Yeah, I'd like to see the, like, the TurboLinks dependency on CoffeeScript go away. So if I know that wasn't the case in the old version. So if 5 does it, that's awesome. Yeah. For all of the people using, uh, for using TurboLinks, they'll be very happy. I think there are a lot more people using TurboLinks than you probably think. <laughs> I don't know. We've done our, we've done our polls. Uh, okay. We've done our poll. Is that yeah. what you're talking about? Yeah. yeah. We're uh, biased. Do we use TurboLinks? Yeah, we, we, we use TurboLinks 3 at Shopify, don't we? Yes. Actually, we made another implementation called TurboGraph. Okay. It's similar to TurboLinks, but... But graph-based? No, it's more <laughs> because it has support to partial replacement, right. I believe, and right. TurboLinks don't have... Well, that was TurboLinks 3. Yeah. Which never saw the light of day. But, right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. GitHub is now doing something. It, it's totally different. It's different? Yeah. I just noticed the progress bar now is at the top of the screen, and I was like, ah, oh, it looks like TurboLinks. But I think it's something like the PGX. Right. Which is similar. Yeah. Yeah. That idea is similar. Yeah. I w- there just needs to be a browser API for showing like progress in the native browser UI. That'd be awesome because it is really confusing when you switch between a GET request and a POST request. Yeah. And the GET request shows you in viewport progress and the POST request shows you browser UI progress. Well, it's like, and everybody is doing some form of in DOM replacement now. Like YouTube has their special loading bar now too. The, pro- the problem with ha- exposing that to developers is that developers are going to get it wrong and they'll be, fir- they'll be never-ending spinners. And you'll be like, is it doing something? I don't know. What's happening? I mean, but they can still just do that. But that's part of page UI, not browser UI, right? So you know that, like, I guess it's, there's really no difference. Cause I don't think the average user knows yeah. or cares. It's true. All right. I'm on board. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody on the Chrome or Firefox teams listening? Get on it. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Oh, that need to be that. That need to be a TC39 proposal, I guess, because that'd be a, a JavaScript API. Yes. Can yeah. we just make it? Uh, like, there must be a process for somebody outside to come in with a proposal. We should just we should just propose this. Okay, we'll work on that. Me and you, we'll do. And then, that. And, then <laughs> and then and then we'll have TurboLinks just work with it, and then and then nobody will have any reason to complain about TurboLinks. And then you don't need to build bars. your own progress bar. Yeah. 
Sounds good. I actually don't care if people are using turbolinks. I just care if they complain. <laughs> yeah, that that's, that makes sense. Um, so you're you're sort of in a similar boat, right? Where you focus a lot on maintenance and not on features. Yes, I <laughs> used to work on features, but I think there are a lot of great people doing that already, and no one wants to maintain software because it's way more boring that yeah. implementing new features. So. I try to be more useful to the team and do the things they don't want to do. So how do you feel about Action Cable? Yeah, <laughs> it's a new feature that, okay, it it's, looks great. The implementation is way better than it was. Yeah, that is true. When it dropped it in the Rails repository. But it's not something that I'm seeing me using a lot, so for me, created more of a load of things that I don't use that I have to maintain. That's fine because we are a team and... Yeah, yeah, sure. Actually, that also happens when I push some kind of features in Active Record that people don't use, but I use. So, yeah. It's created more things to maintain, but it's totally fine. It's something that we really need to do because we have to evolve the framework in some way. Yeah. I just, you know, my whole thing is that I don't think it should be default. default. Yeah. Um, same with TurboLinks, actually. I'm, I think it's actually more okay for uh, Action Cable to be default than TurboLinks because TurboLinks has gotchas. Right. Like, TurboLinks isn't just something that you can drop in and ignore and be unaffected by it. Whereas Action Cable, like at the end of the day, if it's in your gem file and you're not using it, it doesn't really affect anything um, right. other than maybe... Dependencies. Yeah, and I think we, probably generate, some, we probably generate some JavaScript by default too, but... Yes, we do. But even the dependency story has been cleaned up quite a bit. So. Yeah, that one has... Because um, I want to eliminate the C compiler uh, requirement entirely for Rails. And we're almost there. I don't remember what's left, but there is st there's still something. Oh, Nokogiri. Uh, that's hard. That is very hard, yeah. Um, and I'm not sure if we can... What in the default stack uses Nokogiri? HTML sanitizer? Yes. Uh. The sanitizers and also the assertions. It has to have some kind of HTML parser. So mm -hmm. it's using. Yeah. I'm just wondering if we can uh, provide a fallback or maybe the sanitizers get turned on when you like flip a gem on. Just some way that when you do gem install Rails, by default, it will work with that C compiler. Because that makes the getting started story for newbies so much better. Because especially like on Windows, you have the one-click Ruby installer, and that's all fine. But then installing what they call DevKit, which basically is just a MinGW stack that includes like uh, Windows-compatible GCC and whatnot, has a really, really confusing install process that I got wrong like twice. Because you wouldn't expect it. It's, it's a Ruby script you run. But when you're doing this because Ruby isn't working properly, it's not a thing that you'd expect to do Ruby some file, and the file's not named like setup.rb. I don't remember what it is. I, I don't know. It's just it's a it's a really confusing thing. And in theory, like everything that a C extension does for Rails, especially given that we support JRuby, anything that's done with a C extension should basically always just be a performance improvement over something that has a pure Ruby fallback. Yes, that makes sense. Maybe we can get. I don't know why Nokogiri don't have a fallback. Maybe because they use the libxml mm. 
library yeah by I mean, the phone but I, I know they have a java fallback so maybe they should have a ruby fallback too yeah <laughs> i mean implementing all of libxml is no small task but yeah <laughs> it'd be worthwhile like <laughs> i'm sure it'll be fine <laughs> I'm sure I, I there'd be no bugs in Ruby. alternatives in Ruby, right? Yeah, th we yeah. do. Uh, the problem is uh, Lufa doesn't use them, and none are similar in API to Nokogiri. Yes. So it's it's non-trivial to port to something else. Um, I remember uh, Mike Perham was looking at into this recently, specifically looking at if we could remove Nokogiri as a transitive dependency for Rails. Uh, and he came to the conclusion, not that it was impossible, but that it was a bigger task than we might want to do. Yeah, I, it's something that I want to work in, is to get more support to different sanitizers. Right now we use only Lufa, that depends on Nokogiri. Mm -hmm. But there are different sanitizers, like there is a sanitizer Gen that is also great, and the API is compatible with Lufa. And I also use Nokogiri, but we can actually build a different sanitizer that don't use Nokogiri at all. Yeah. It's Just a, use a regex. Yeah, and, <laughs> in Shop, and also in Shopify, we still use the deprecated sanitizer because we have some different... Because we're special. Yeah, <laughs> we're requirements. Always. We have different requirements for sanitization. Right. And the new sanitizer is breaking something, so I just fall back for the deprecated sanitizer. But if we need to keep that in Shopify, I would have to not deprecate that sanitizer <laughs> anymore. So maybe I need to get some kind of API to switch between sanitizers. Welcome to the deprecated sanitizer core team. Yeah. <laughs> All right, we should probably wrap up so we can get to the next round of talks. Do you have anything you want to plug or anything like that before we go? Anything that you're excited about? Yeah, so I'm excited about two things. The one thing is the IBM Visual Machine being integrated with Ruby. I don't know if you saw that project, but there are some people in IBM working to get the core VM doing some things that works do. Ruby do right now, like garbage collector and memory, things like that. And for me, it's something that is interesting to see better support to battleproof VMs in the Ruby MRI Ruby interpreter. So, yeah, we'll get Koichi to get on it. <laughs> yeah, that's really great. And yeah, also the which talked today about how to generate bytecode from Ruby code was really great and is something that I think we really need in the Ruby interpreters. It's mm -hmm. something that would maybe change some the whole story about Ruby being slow. Mm -hmm. Well, we'll put a link to that talk in the show notes. Thanks for coming on, Rafael. It's great having you. It's great to be here. <laughs> I'm a listener of the podcast. So. <laughs> Long time listener, be, first time caller. <laughs> yeah, it, it will be fun to listen to me in the podcast. Great. Cool. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 67. As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes and Google Play are much appreciated. If you have feedback about this episode or any others, you can tweet us at underscore bikeshed, email us at host at bikeshed.fm, or leave a comment on the website. Thanks for listening to Bike Shed, and we'll see you next time.